Hey, everybody. How's it going? Welcome back to another episode of the podcast. Uh, this question and answer, I was pretty excited to do. Um, we covered things like how audition preparation, um, learning other instruments, um, burnout. We talked about burnout at the end of the episode a little bit. And so I just tried to answer honestly. I hope that these answers can be thought-provoking and or helpful if anybody is struggling or thinking about these types of questions as well. Um, let me know if you want me to do more of this kind of thing in the future. But for now, before we get into it, I just want to thank our sponsor for the podcast, Houghton Horns. For those of you that aren't familiar, Houghton Horns is a family-owned business in Keller, Texas, and their mission is to spread the joy of music through providing the highest level of products, services, and resources to the brass playing community. One of my guilty pleasures in life is diving down endless rabbit holes on YouTube for all kinds of educational content. You can find so much information for any kind of topic you're looking for, including music education resources. Unfortunately, not every source of information is full of great information. And one of my favorite things about Houghton Horns and what actually raised my awareness of them way before they became a sponsor for this podcast is their YouTube channel. They have so many high-quality recordings and tutorial-type videos for players to learn from. It's clear to me that by supporting Houghton Horns, you're also supporting the creation of high-level music education content for so many students to benefit from. At Houghton Horns, they strive to put service to the customer as their top priority. Whether you are a beginner student, a hobbyist, or a full-time professional, Houghton Horns can help you find what you're looking for. Go to HoughtonHorns.com for more information. Hello, and welcome to That's Not Spit, It's Condensation. Hello, everybody, and welcome to That's Not Spit, It's Condensation. I'm Ryan Beach, and on today's episode, it's going to be just me going over some questions that I got on Instagram. I posted it on my story. Um, I just didn't get anybody for this week to interview when I'm busy uh, with work and other projects. Uh, sometimes I forget to do that because I'm a one-man operation here, and so sometimes that slides by, slips through the cracks, so to speak. Uh, I have some interviews lined up coming up, so we will get back to our regularly scheduled interviews. But I thought this might be kind of a fun change of pace for me to be able to try to address some of the questions that people have. And uh, hopefully, uh, hopefully this is something that even if you didn't ask a question, maybe you can still benefit from uh, hearing my perspective on various questions that people ask. So um, this is something that uh, I'll just do you know, I'll just take the questions as they uh, came in on the Instagram story. And um, yeah, let's just dive into it. So the first question that I got was from Another Day, Another Melody. And it says, how do you organize your practice when you have 30 excerpts to master in a month? So the first thing I would say to this is, um, if you're just starting the process, like this is the first audition you've ever taken and you are learning everything from the ground up, mastering something in 30 days is probably not going to happen. You might be able to learn them pretty well, 
and you might be able to represent yourself pretty well. But the process of mastering anything, but the excerpts in this case, just takes a long time. And so um, I'm going to assume that by asking the question that way, uh, this person who asked it might be someone who's taken a lot of auditions and they're looking for advice on how to uh, peak, how to go from, I, I know these excerpts, but I haven't practiced them in a while to I'm ready to win an audition. So that's how I'm going to answer the question. Um, there are five broad categories that we want to cover or we want to make sure that are in there. And then I'll give a little bit of information about specifically about organization. The five broad categories are going to be, you want to play for other people if you can, you want to record yourself. You want to make sure that you have some way of breaking things down and doing sort of detail work. Uh, you want to make sure that you incorporate mock auditions into your pro uh, process of preparation. And then finally, you want to make sure you've done something to address your mental game, making sure your mind is strong and sharp and ready for the audition. So I think the first one I said was playing for other people. When you're in school, you have your teachers and you have your peers, your fellow students, and and you can play for anybody. I wouldn't necessarily do this all the time for every single person you can ever find. I would try to reserve it for people whose ears you trust and whose input and feedback you want. So uh, it can be tempting in that kind of environment, like I said, for school to play for every teacher. I did that at Northwestern when I was there a fair amount, I would play for all the different teachers because they're all really amazing and I would get all of this feedback and then I would sort of be overwhelmed thinking, well, well how do, what do I do? How, whose interpretation do I choose to play? And uh, so you ultimately want your interpretation, right? And playing for other people that you trust and that you respect and that you want their input, that can help you sort of clarify um, your interpretation and how you want to best bring that forward. So for someone like me, I have played for people in my orchestra. Um, I know other people that I've interviewed who have flown around the country to play for various people that they respect. And so it gets harder as you get out of school to find people to play for. And so you might have to go to some extra lengths to do that. But it's an important part of the process because we want them not, we don't necessarily want to prepare in a vacuum. Most of our work is going to be done in the practice room on our own, making our own decisions. But getting a sense of how other people would interpret it will give us a realistic sense of how a committee also might be interpreting what we do. So that's an important part. The second one I think I said was recording yourself. Um, the real question here is how much to record yourself. Uh, the recommendation I would have is trying to record uh, a little bit of everything that you do. So you could record, you could say, I'm going to play a certain excerpt. I don't want to practice it. So you record the very first um, repetition of it. And then from there, you have information of how you're going to make your the rest of your repetitions productive, where you might not record every other repetition, but because you recorded that first one, you at least have a sense of where you're at. Um, you could record your first and your last repetition of something to see that you've made progress. You could record everything and go listen back to it, but that's kind of a lot to do um, and the other thing I would recommend personally, everyone's got a different opinion on this, but personally, I would recommend listening to it right away instead of waiting in the context of recording yourself and getting feedback for your work in the practice room. If you were to record a mock round, a full mock round, or maybe even the audition itself, I think there's a lot of value in waiting um, because you want to sort of forget almost what you sounded like. 
But for the purpose of getting immediate feedback so you can make your practice productive, I would just record, you know, just record the excerpt, listen back to it, make some notes about things that aren't going as well as you want them to. And now you have exactly what you're going to practice. Um, I personally don't do things like listening back at half speed, but there are preparation systems out there that do listen back at half speed. And so, um, you kind of just got, in this instance, you kind of got to figure out what works for you, but I would just start with record the very first time you run through something, listen back to it at regular speed and see if that helps you get some uh, good data that you can use to make your practice more productive. The third thing would be detail work. This is basically going to be things like how do you break things down? Generally, slowing things down is going to be a really important part of the process. But you can also, like on trumpet, you can slur technical things to help you get some flow in there. Um, you can try to skeletonize things. So you take out some of the complicatedness of the rhythm and you just figure out, well, where do I want the shape or the architecture of this to go? Recording yourself is going to be part of this. These are going to kind of overlap a little bit. But really, it's just the structure and the tools you use to once you understand what it is that you want to get better at, it's the tools and the structure you use to be able to make those changes actually happen. And so, like I said, you, you can... You don't necessarily need to go overboard with this. You just need to make sure that it's in there. Again, for me, slowing things down is almost always the very first thing I'll do because it helps me see the things I'm good at in a phrase and it helps me see the things that I'm struggling with and it kind of shines a light on the things I need to focus on uh, with a little bit more clarity. But there are all sorts of different ways that people talk about how to do this step. Uh, the fourth step was mock rounds. So you can sort of have this overlap with playing for other people and getting feedback from other people, but there's also a lot of value in you just turning on the recorder and playing an entire round for the recorder. And then you go back and listen to it and you say, okay, how did I sound? As if it were the actual audition. So you're getting a lot of input or sorry, a lot of data or information uh, on how you are presenting or how you are demonstrating the skill that you have developed through your preparation or process of preparation. So uh, I would generally recommend either putting this kind of mock round stuff at the end of the process. So sort of a week or a week and a half before you do the audition, I would shift into doing mostly mock rounds, but there is a lot of value in putting some mock rounds, sort of sprinkling them throughout the process so that you can get a sense of, okay, this is how I sound when I play around, and that's going to give me good feedback for my practice when I break down the excerpts later. Um, when you do a mock round, I would do something like, I'm going to say, okay, today I'm going to do mock rounds. I'm going to do three rounds of eight excerpts in a row, and then just pick random ones, pick them out of a hat, you know, a random number generator online. Or you could do, you know, four rounds of six excerpts or five rounds of seven excerpts. It doesn't really matter. You just kind of want to pick how much you're going to do, and then you go from there. And then the final part is the mental component. You want to make sure that you have addressed, at least thought about this, right? And in the interviews and the discussions I've had, every single person has some sort of way of saying, this is how I conquered my mind, or this is how I got my mind right, or this is how I was able to develop focus. Everybody who's won an audition can tell you to some degree of certainty this is how I got my mind right. So it's going to be things like first addressing the fact that you got to sort of believe that it's possible for you to win the audition or else you're really not going to give yourself, you're not going to go for it, right? So you have to say, I think this is possible and I'm going to do everything I can to uh, 
to prepare. And I'm not going to leave anything on the table. I'm going to try as hard as I possibly can. And then you have to sort of get your head into, do I know what I want these excerpts to sound like? How do I develop that through listening, through recording, through feedback from outside sources like I already talked about? And then you want to, once you start to develop a mental representation or a picture of what you want them to sound like through your practice, you're going to start being able to develop various cues of, okay, when I play the ballerina's dance from Petrushka, I want this to be um, light or buoyant, or you start to develop words that you associate with them. You also start to learn, uh, if I breathe a certain way, then the excerpt itself sort of seems to work. So you're trying to develop cues that will allow you to sort of simplify how much you're thinking about in any given time uh, so that you can sort of recreate it over and over and over and over again. Um, so those, those are these five broad categories. Again, playing for other people, uh, recording yourself, how you break things down and do detail work. Um, what was the other one? Um, mock rounds and you're sort of developing your mental game. So those are these broad categories. Quickly, uh, for in terms of structure, the general way I would recommend things is you want to, the simplest way to do this is you just say, I would have an A, a B, and a C group. A are excerpts that are pretty easy. B are excerpts that are not super, super easy, but I need to do some work on them. And C are excerpts that are very hard. You can pick more categories if you want, but this is a simple place to start. And then you divide up the excerpts into these different groups. And then you're going to assign, you're going to say, okay, I'm going to do the most amount of work on the C group, a little bit less work on the B group, and a little bit less work on the A group. You could say, I'll practice the A group twice a week, the B group three times a week, and the C group four or five times a week, or whatever you want to do. But you want to sort of make sure that you're spending time on the excerpt, spending the right amount of time on the excerpts based on their difficulty, generally speaking. There is a lot more depth that we could go into, um, but you're basically going to spend, you know, two or so weeks practicing these things, recording yourself, trying to get it so you're moving forward a little bit. And then maybe you'll do two or three days of mock rounds and say, okay, where am I at? How are things going? That'll get you some feedback and some data that's going to help you be able to um, make the next, you know, the next two weeks when you go back to practicing um, a little bit more productive. So maybe two weeks of practicing, three days of mock rounds, two more weeks of practicing, and then maybe a week and a half of mock rounds. And if you did all of your due diligence before the before everything, like listening and making your mental, or sorry, your musical models and the things that you want to do, this would serve to be a five or a six week preparation that would have things in a pretty logical place. So I hope that answers that question. It's kind of a long answer, but that's where we are. The next question that I got is from Tim MacBreen, I think. Hopefully that's right. Do you think learning or practicing another instrument would diminish your primary skills? I think the only thing that's going to diminish your primary skills is if you stop practicing whatever your primary skill is. You know, the myelin, if you've read the talent code myelin talks about, as long as you're using it, you don't lose it, but you can lose it if you don't use it. And so if I, if I was like, I want to learn the piano. And so I go and I start practicing the piano, but to the exclusion of playing the trumpet, yeah, that would um, diminish my primary skills. But if I practiced both of them and kept them up, then you would assume that I would be able to maintain the skill on the first instrument or the first skill and be able to develop on the second one. 
I think there's a lot. I mean, I haven't been able to do this just because of time, but I'm really interested in the concept of learning another instrument because certain techniques I might use on something like the piano or the violin might be different than techniques I would use on the trumpet. And I might be able to learn something about how to make my trumpet practice that much more efficient or effective based on techniques I would have learned pursuing a different instrument. So I think it could diminish your skills, but as long as you're keeping up on the first skill, I don't see why it would diminish it. But uh, I'm not I'm not a neurobiologist, you know what I mean? I don't, I've learned a lot about that, but I can't say with certainty um, I just think as long as you keep it up, you should be able to do it. Um, my brother-in-law, Sean, says, what is your deadlift PR? It's 520 pounds. <laughs> it's not, not related, but it's all right. Uh, no, it's just Michael says, how do you say I have a bad chap day? Um, the question is a weird or interesting question because like, why would you want to save a bad chap day? Like, To me, if it's a really a bad chap day, I would quitting or for that day and coming back the next day is probably uh, a valuable thing to do. But if you can't, let's say you like have to practice or you have a concert or something like that, uh, you would try, generally speaking, to fall back on whatever principles of healthy production that you know. And so for me, that's going to be things like making sure that the air is forward, making sure that I'm projecting and thinking far away. There are certain cues like this that really help me to know if I get off track, how to get back on track. This is kind of related to the mental preparation part of the auditions that I was talking about just a little bit ago. Um, and so you want to try to start as slow as you can in terms of warming up and in terms of the practice you're doing and try not to move too fast. I think the the danger or the, the feeling can be, well, things feel horrible, um, but maybe I have like a concert or a rehearsal or something that I have to get ready for and I need to make sure I play all these high notes that I need to be able to play and do my whole warm-up so you sort of rush through it without taking much care. But uh, I've heard various stories from various professionals that sometimes they're in this scenario and they go nice and slow. They're trying to make sure everything is set up just right. If you don't know what it means to be set up just right, you either ask the teacher that you already have or you got to find somebody uh, to reach out to somebody who can help you figure out what that is. Because if if you don't know what it is, there's no way you're going to save a bad chop day because you don't know what the difference between a bad and a good chop day is. Um, so you want to try to go slow, set things up so that you're getting back on track and just release the idea that you're going to do, you're going to finish your warm up, or you're going to finish some sort of routine and just say that, okay, if I can get things set up and stacked on top of each other in healthy ways and lay some of these bricks, that's probably going to benefit me more than just, you know, kind of barreling through it. And then, you know, you do the best you can. Uh, we, we all have, uh, bad chop days, but hopefully through uh, more and more efficiency being developed in the way we approach the instrument and the way we produce sound, the bad days and the good days become uh, closer and closer over time. So uh, yeah, I guess to summarize my answer to this question, you first need to know what constitutes a good chop day. And then just make sure that you don't move too quickly uh, from your sort of starting in this bad chop place Make sure you don't move too quickly as you move closer to trying to establish those good habits. And if you don't know what they are, uh, make sure you reach out to a teacher or somebody else. 
Um, all right. So up next, we have one from Ekem Graham that says, if you could change one thing about American music education, what would it be? Um, I don't feel remotely qualified to answer this question, so I don't really want to uh, dive in deep. Uh, I have some ideas and some thoughts about how we learn and how we get better, um, and that has led to some questions that I have uh, about the way that you know music schools and things like that are structured. Uh, but I, I don't know nearly enough to publicly share my opinions and my thoughts. I haven't talked with enough music teachers to see like is my are my ideas already happening, you know, are there, and I'm just unaware or I just, you know, haven't had enough conversations with people. So I don't really feel comfortable answering that question at the current time. Uh, but suffice to say, I, I think it's worth asking the question at all times, is the way we're doing things currently the best way to be doing things? Um, that's that's the best I can say. I mean, there are other models and, and other countries around the world of how people learn things. You know, there's the Suzuki method of learning things that seems to be incredibly successful, but they start early. Um, and so I just think it's always, even in your own practice and in your own life and anything like that, just asking the question is, are we doing, am I doing things the best way? Or am I doing things in a good way, but there's room for improvement? So I hope to be able to actually speak to this with some amount of understanding, but I just don't have that right now. So, sorry. Um, this question comes from Steven Stavnicki. It says, when you were audition... Oh, hang on just a second. Sorry. Um, I took a screenshot of it, but I couldn't find it. When you were auditioning for orchestras, what's one excerpt that you had all had always been a challenge for you personally, maybe one that you always dreaded seeing on a list, and how did you work to overcome its challenges? There's two excerpts I can think of off the top of my head. The first one is the ballerina's dance from Petrushka. The reason it was difficult for me is because for a very long time, I struggled to play lightly. I could play Petrushka, but it was heavy and it was aggressive uh, it was kind of loud, and so it took a very long time for me to understand how to play uh, lightly. And so I guess the way that I overcame this, the challenges of this excerpt, where I got better, A, I got better at playing lightly, which is a different conversation, one I'm happy to have in the future. Uh, and then the second thing was I just got better at, you know, a number of years ago, I, many of you probably remember, but I put something on my Instagram that was called like a Petrushka practice program or something like that. And it had an actual program you could follow to learn Petrushka um, when I was first messing around with these practice program uh, type things with the gold method. And so those two things combined, one, understanding and learning how to play lightly, and two, understanding how to structure my work so that I could set up the habits I wanted at a slower tempo and then just hold those habits as I got faster. Um, and this is sort of an answer to the previous question about uh, how would you master excerpts is just to make sure that you're trying to establish what you want to establish your mental representation uh, at tempos or in ways that make you successful. I wouldn't say, okay, well, someday in the future, this will just magically get better. But rather, how can I make this great right now? 
And then how can I speed up the tempo if I'm playing slower than the, the goal tempo that I want to play? The other excerpt I can think of that I struggled with was the second movement of the Shostakovich Piano Concerto Number no. 1. Um, I just really I struggled to play in the low register, so certainly getting better at the low register, and that was just learning how to sort of keep things forward and not drop my jaw as much. But one thing I've struggled with just throughout my career, um, and people may not know because I'm able to sort of make it happen, but just first attacks, security of releasing my very first sound is something I think about all the time. And so, you know, even just starting an excerpt like that where you want the note to sort of just appear out of nowhere in this mysterious thing, that was stressful for me. And then there's all sorts of other articulations where you can't just, like, you have to continue the line in this beautiful way. You kind of can't just tongue hard because it'll interrupt the line. And so uh, an excerpt like that, and I, I, I would say I'm just continuing to try to learn how to have more security in my releases while also making sure that I have control over how uh, much I tongue or how little I, I tongue in terms of how, like whether it's an aggressive articulation or it's more of a legato articulation, trying to make sure I have security and I own all different types of articulation. So when I choose uh, to apply a certain articulation in this excerpt, I will have more success doing it. So uh, hopefully that answers the question. Uh, most of the times when you're overcoming something in an excerpt, it's probably going to be a fundamental issue. And then if it's not a fundamental issue, if you understand, like you're like, ah, okay, I can play lightly. That's not a problem. But I struggle with Petrushka. More than likely, it's the process with which you're approaching it with. The way you're practicing it is not leading you to ingraining good habits. Okay, the next question we have is ways to structure practice for an upcoming audition. So I kind of already answered this. Again, we just want to make sure that we are A, uh, assigning uh, the amount that we're going to practice based on the difficulty. Uh, so things like Pines of Rome offstage, we don't necessarily need to practice as much as excerpts from Scheherazade. And then B, make sure that Here's, a, here's just a way to think about it. So uh, when we have the quality of our playing and we have the approach to our playing. And so oftentimes people practice with a fixed approach, variable quality. What that means is you play the exercises about the same over and over and over again. It's from the same tempo or the same approach. And the quality is not great when you start and then it gets better over time. So you're thinking, I'm not good, but as I just continue to play, it will get better over time. What I've tried to do in my practice is to flip that and to say, I want to have fixed quality, variable approach. So I will do everything I can to protect playing with a high level of quality with my playing. And if I have to slow things down or if I have to slur things or take it down an octave or, you know, skeletonize it or whatever, I don't really care what I have to do to the excerpt. I want good habits from the very beginning or as close to the very beginning as possible. So you want within a week or two to have some good habits kind of ironed out. And again, if you're first approaching excerpts, this might not be the case for you. It might take longer, but we shouldn't necessarily skip over the step of trying to ingrain good habits just with the assumption that someday it might get better. So hopefully that answers that question. What do you do to improve sound quality? EW2220 asks that question. 
Um, there are, are there's a big picture answer and then there's a specific answer. So the big picture answer is the reason you sound like yourself is because you hear yourself the most. So if you can insert player A or player B in terms of recordings or maybe a teacher or something, if you can insert their sound into your process more often and you can hear their sound more often, you'll begin to be able to assimilate the, their sound more. So the idea is if I listen to Phil Smith a lot, I'll start to sound more like Phil Smith. If I listen to Bud Herseth a lot, I'll start to sound more like Bud Herseth and so on. Now that's the big picture thing, but related to that and a more specific thing is also trying to figure out what qualities you admire about their playing. So if I say, I listen to Phil Smith all the time, maybe we'll get lucky and we'll be able to just assimilate it and do it. But sometimes if it's not necessarily, you know, you're not just becoming more like Phil Smith just because you uh, have heard it, maybe sometimes you need to actually describe with adjectives what you like about his playing. So something like, uh, I really like the fullness or the beauty or the um, sort of the uh, singing quality of Phil's sound. And then you can start to listen to recordings of yourself and say, well, do I have those qualities? Is my sound singing? Well, if you say yes, then you're like, cool. Well, that's one quality of Phil Smith's sound. If you don't sound like Phil, we, we just have to figure out what other qualities exist that we don't have. If the answer is no, my sound is not singing, you have to either figure out what makes a singing sound or these are questions for your teacher who possibly has developed a singing sound and understands how to get you to, to move in that direction. So it's kind of a tiered process. You find a player that you really enjoy and listen to that all the time and then try to develop adjectives that describe the aspects of that sound that you really admire and then going one level deeper, trying to figure out what they're doing to create that adjective or talking to a teacher and saying, I really admire the singing quality of Phil Smith. How do I develop that in my playing? And hopefully um, they will be able to help you do that. And then from there, it's just making sure you're structuring your work in such a way that you can be successful at whatever it is. If you want to sound like Phil Smith, uh, it would be best to not say, well, I'm going to practice sounding like Phil Smith on the Tomasi trumpet concerto right away. You might need to play something like easy arbit exercises or basic violin things or scales or arpeggios or Goldman etudes, things like this, where at least at the beginning, we want the difficulty to be can I sound like Phil Smith, not can I play this exercise? And then as you develop more consistency and ability to sound like Phil Smith, then you can start to add layers of difficulty in terms of the exercises and start to challenge yourself with more and more challenging repertoire. Hopefully that makes sense. Um, Ryan V. Trumpet says, how or how, how or has experience with powerlifting or fitness impacting Impacted handling performance anxiety. That's a really kind of interesting takeaway or application. Usually people are like, how has it helped your practice or how has it helped your breathing or something? But in terms of performance anxiety, um, I would say that the way that it's helped is just the idea that the way we prepare has a very direct correlation with the way that we perform. So if you're in the gym and you're going to go to a powerlifting meet and the powerlifting meet is you you, you walk in there and you get you warm up and then you get three um, squat attempts to squat as heavy as you can. So if you've prepared by squatting sets of 10 for 10 weeks, 
and then you got to go in there and squat a heavy one rep max, you will not be prepared. And you will probably be nervous and anxious because you did not prepare for the thing that it is that you needed to do. And so really understanding that from a powerlifting context has is where I got the gold method in this understanding that our practice should reflect the thing that we need to do. And so we first need to build a relationship with our music. This is going to be understanding. There's different sort of phases I would go through. I would make sure I first understand the music, all of the notes, all of the rhythms, all of the articulations and the style. Do I understand what this is? I don't care if I can play the piece. I care if I understand. And then after that, you're slowly trying to assimilate all that together while you know speeding things up or becoming more comfortable with various sections of music. And then at the end, you're saying, okay, I'm going to perform this a whole bunch by myself and get used to playing it so that when I perform it on stage, I'm used to playing these things straight through. So hopefully, you know, when we feel, when we've used the process of preparation, the way I think about it is to learn to prepare in such a way where we played well on purpose. It's like, I knew what I was going to sound like. I knew what was going on. I'm going to interview my friend Tommy Dobbs soon and talk about this and how he prepared for a marimba concerto performance that he did recently. But the idea is, is that we shouldn't just prepare so we can go on stage and have a pretty good idea. We should prepare to such a degree where we almost can know what's going to happen. And if we if we walk on stage with that amount of confidence, I think performance anxiety becomes a little bit less. And then the other half of that is just remembering what cues you were going to do so that you can keep your mind occupied on what you're doing and not occupied on any mistakes you might make or what people might be thinking of your interpretation, things like that. Next one, how do you go about organizing or planning out your practice for efficient practicing? This is from Trumpet JB. So I've touched on this uh, in previous answers, but to go a slightly deeper for something like fundamentals, um, well, just, just the big picture. If you're not preparing for a performance, right? So if you're preparing for a recital or a solo at a concert or an audition, the way you prepare is going to be different than something like fundamentals that you're just, you're sort of in perpetuity getting better and better and better and better, but you're not ever going to perform them. So I've talked a lot about preparing for something with a performance at the end, but to talk about the other side of it, you know, for something like fundamentals, what I do is I sort of just have this four-week cycle of, you know, the first week I have various exercises and the tempos are slower than week two. Those are slower than week three. And then week four is the whatever the goal I choose. So if we take a random Arbin exercise, I say, I want to play this at 120 beats per minute. If I could do that and the quality was high, I would be happy. Well, then it's like, okay, well, week one will start slow then. It'll start maybe at like... 70 beats per minute or 80 beats per minute or whatever you would say in that neighborhood so that I can I can do that thing I was talking about where the quality is already high at the beginning of the way I prepare. And then I'm just slowly increasing the tempo and setting what you might consider to be a quality PR, right? So instead of it being like, well, I'm going to play it faster and faster, what I'm going to do is say, I'm going to slow it down to 80 beats per minute and I'm going to play it the best that I'm capable of playing it. And we'll say, that's a PR, 80 is my PR where I played it at this tempo and it sounded whatever, sounded the best it could sound. And then next week or a few days later, I might play it at 85. 
And I'm trying to hold that quality. So if I can play it at 85, we would call it a quality PR. That's the fastest I've ever played it at the best quality I'm capable of. And then you just hold that quality as you move forward until you get to 120 beats per minute or whatever your goal is. The other thing I do is every four weeks, I, I make a new routine or a slight, you know, I take the same routine and I alter it slightly. So I'm never doing a routine in perpetuity in terms of the way that I approach it. I'm never, it's not like I have this routine and I've been doing it for the last 10 years or something like that. I may have a routine that looks similar to previous months, but every four weeks I'm reassessing and I'm thinking, okay, is there anything that I don't want to do anymore? Are there things that I want to keep doing because I feel like they're helpful? Are there things that I could just keep doing because I haven't quite learned it? Things like that. So then you have sort of this rotating cycle that never peaks, but you sort of have a goal that you're pursuing throughout the week is saying, okay, this flexibility exercise, I want to be able to play it without any, you know, um, any bumps in the slurs at all. And I want to be able to, wherever I start, I want to be better at it, more consistent at it. I want to be able to miss fewer things or whatever four weeks from now. And so you sort of, again, it's not like a performance, but you still have something that you're working towards. This is what the Fundamentals app on the Gold Method app is. This is what it does. It just, it allows you to, you assign the exercises, the tempos, and the the amount of repetitions that you want to choose. And then it gives you this four-week cycle. And so that's another way I think about doing it. And so it allows me to set up great habits as soon as I can, usually in week one. And then my practice for the next three weeks is focused on maintaining or refining quality rather than I have. So I basically don't have bad practice sessions anymore. I have some that I don't sound quite as good, but I wouldn't call it bad because I'm constantly learning about how to be a little bit better each time. Hopefully that answers your question. And finally, we have Caleb... I think Caleb Dixon, um, have you experienced burnout? If so, how did you deal with that while continuing to perform? Um, yeah, I don't know anybody who hasn't experienced burnout. Um, you know, when you're when you're experiencing burnout, when I've experienced it, just I just like take a take a day or take a few days off. You know, like, well, here's here's actually. I I had some Instagram discussions about this, I don't know, like a year ago or something like that, about whether people take a day off per week or not. And I'm in the camp of I take one day off per week. And so from a burnout perspective, I'm almost like I'm doing it sort of ahead of time or I'm sort of preemptively helping myself with burnout by making sure that I never never really push too far to the point where I'm actually at burnout. And so... You know, Sundays are my day off. And when I get to Sunday, I'm ready for a day off. I'm ready to just have a day where I don't practice. I don't work out. You know, I read. I try to just relax. Maybe I watch a movie with the kids. Like, I'm not doing much on that day. Sometimes I'll do a little writing or I'll do a little bit of writing outline for a video I might do, but nothing serious. And so this preemptively helps me not get burnt out because it also resets my mind as well. But if you're someone who can't take days off for some reason, you may come to a point where you have to. And there's nothing wrong with taking a few days off. Um, If you are forced to, like if you have all these performances or something like that, if you're in some crazy situation where you literally can't take time off, I would say 
just warm up for the gig and play the gig. Like, do what you got to do to get through it until you can take some time off. Um, and then I think, I, I just think the best advice I can possibly give is try to release yourself of the thought, if you're like me, that you can you can do it all and you can do it as quickly as you possibly can. I feel I feel like if you I've really tried to shift my perspective on this and really start to ask the question, well, what's my time frame that I'm pursuing here? Like I have all these goals. I want to play this way or I want to win this or I want to do that, whatever, right? But what's my time frame for that? How quickly do I need to be the player that can accomplish these goals? When I was in school, the answer was tomorrow. Like I had to be that good tomorrow. Well, that's just not that's just stupid, right? Like, it's cool because I was motivating myself to do it, but it wasn't based on reality. It wasn't based on how you actually get better. It was just me saying, I will just willpower myself into being better. The reality of the situation is very, very different. And the big picture idea I'm trying to get across here is if you have accepted that it's going to take you 10 years to get where you want to go, to be a master or an expert at your instrument, a few days off here and there in the meantime are not going to derail you. But if you feel like you don't have time to waste, then you're constantly putting your nose to the grindstone and eventually you're going to burn out. It's just how human beings are. It's no one's, I don't think there's anyone out there who doesn't get burnt out. There are some people who maybe thrive on the work and so they can seemingly put in a little bit more, but like who cares, right? Someone that comes to mind is David Goggins. He he kind of gives this image that it doesn't matter how he feels, like he's going to go out there and do it and he 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 thrives on it. And that's like good for David Goggins, but like we there's other people who are successful that don't do that too. And successful just meaning they accomplish their goals, right? You don't have to act like David Goggins to get what you think that you need or to achieve your goals. Um, there are plenty of people who have lives where they are certainly dedicated and they're certainly sacrificing certain things so that they can achieve their goals. But they also are able to say, well, I can take a day off or I can take two days off or maybe I'm going to take a week off you know, every X amount of time or whatever. I just think burnout comes about because we get into this frame of mind that's like, I got to do it all and I can't take a break or all these people are going to be disappointed with me or I'll be disappointed with myself and I'll never achieve my goals. And it's just like not true. You know, like I think this is maybe going back to the uh, music education question. I think one thing I felt and maybe other people feel is that I only had four years to figure it out. If I did not figure out how to win a job or something in four years, then I would never be able to figure it out. Like I lost my chance. But no, that's not how it works. I know that now, especially as the things I've been researching into, learning is this lifelong thing. Like you try to, you know, you're basically just, let's say there's a 10-year process. That four years you have an undergrad is just the first four years of this 10-year process. There's no way we could expect to become an expert. But there are some people who are starting, you know, their, their undergrad in year like six so they hit six, seven, or they have six, seven, eight, nine, or something like that. And then they win a job in their master's or something. Well, they maybe had a lot of productive years before their undergrad, too. No one's winning a job or no one's achieving their goals overnight. So just try to release this is a bit of a rant, rant sorry, a, 
um, not a rant, but a um, I'm rambling. But just try to release yourself from the idea that it has to be overnight. I think when you release that, you're able to take breaks because you just recognize, like, whether if I work today or I don't work today, it's not going to move the needle that much in the scope of a 10-year period. Um, and then maybe you can save that for, you know, the other things that will fulfill you, maybe on that, maybe you go on one walk per week because you took a day off of your instrument or whatever. So the burnout I've experienced, most of my burnout that I experienced wasn't, was not also because I wasn't, um, I was like too busy or I was trying to figure it out. Like, I, I mean, basically I deal, I dealt with my burnout by, by just getting as drunk as possible all the time. Um, you know, on the weekends at and undergrad and grad school, I'd just I'd go crazy, right? That's how I dealt with it. It's incredibly unhealthy, uh, and in some ways, I feel like I'm lucky to be to be alive, truthfully speaking. But that's how I dealt with it then. And then when I won my job in Alabama, I um, I I sort of dealt with this other. It wasn't necessarily burnout, but I dealt with this like I don't I don't know what to do. I don't know how to get better. You know, I can try to assign myself crazy uh, recitals. I did a recital that was uh, Slavish Fantasy, the Huna Slavish Fantasy, and then the Buma Sex, no, the Buma Trumpet Concerto, and then the Peskin Trumpet Concerto, and then the Brandt Concert Piece Number One, and then the Buma Sextet. And it was at the limit of my capabilities. Like I was kind of on my teeth in the Sextet playing it. And then I finished it and I was like, okay, did I get any better? It's like, I don't know. And I just got so frustrated that I kind of stopped caring about the trumpet altogether. And I did what I needed to do to be ready for my job. That's what I was kind of saying. Like I practiced enough to feel like I was going to be ready for the pieces that I had to play, but I had very little drive to do what I'm doing now, which is to dig deep and explore and record myself and find areas for improvement. Um, I just needed this period of a what seemed like a while like, you know, more than a year, I needed this period of, I just don't know what I'm doing and it's fine. I'm just going to pursue other things that interest me. Again, I, I I can't let my colleagues down or anything like that. I'm not just going to completely start blowing it, but any extracurricular achievement just stopped happening. And that's how I dealt with that. I just stopped. But, you know, life is like that, right? It's funny, like, I care so much right now after all of this time of going through sort of like unhealthy, trying to force growth, you know, by thinking tomorrow has got to be the day that I'm good. And then I sort of fell away from it, sort of almost riding this roller coaster of it means everything to me and then it means nothing to me. And now I feel like I've sort of found some sort of healthy balance of I care very deeply about it, but I also care about other things. And when it's time to practice, I'm giving my very best effort. I'll take a day off because the trumpet doesn't own me. <laughs> like I'm, It's just a piece of metal. And that's all of that is okay. And, you know, but it was a process for me to get here. I had to go through those struggles. And so sometimes the final piece, I kind of, again, I've kind of rambled here, but the final piece I'd say about Burnout is sometimes burnout is telling us something, right? It's not just like a burnout and we feel it and, oh, like, what do I do? I mean, it's obviously those things, but sometimes it's telling us that the way we're approaching or the way we're thinking about things or our perspective about what we're supposed to be doing in life or whatever uh, needs some adjustment, 
Maybe we need a little bit less service to the instrument. Maybe the instrument is just one part of what we do. And so the burnout is coming because that the thing that we define ourselves by is taking so long to come to fruition that it's just like, oh, I can't handle this anymore. Um, but you know, if we're going to be pursuing this kind of thing, whether or not we are turning to professionals, uh, well, you know, hopefully this is something that's in our life and it's a thing that we can pursue uh, for a very long time, just trying to be excel more and more. So, as, uh, like I said, just using burnout as a way to ad- assess where am I at, what am I doing, is the way that I'm thinking about things beneficial? Should I reach out to somebody, whether it's a friend or like maybe actual therapist, right? Like, do I need to reach out to somebody who can help me sift through all of the things I'm thinking in my perspective and to help me sort of um, gain a new perspective, if that makes sense. Like the people in my small group at my church have been really incredible uh, for that for me. They've helped reorient some of the way that um, just because they're not musicians, you know, they they don't, or at least they're not professional musicians. It's like all of a sudden my small, my circle went from everybody who thinks like me to people who think all sorts of different ways because they do all sorts of different jobs and all that kind of thing. And so sometimes an outside side perspective like that can help us who are in the throes of trying to figure out what am I doing with my life as a musician, they can kind of help uh, center and ground us. So uh, I hope that that is helpful. This is kind of fun to do for me, kind of just trying to riff a little bit here. Um if you're interested in me doing another one of these kinds of things, uh, reach out to me and let me know. And uh, I will be happy to do that. Like I said, next week we will be back with our regularly scheduled uh, interviews. And um, that's all I got. So if you need to get in touch with me, you can do that on that's not spit.com or that's not spit on Facebook and Instagram. If you enjoyed this episode, I would appreciate it if you left a rating and a review on iTunes and Uh, if you shared it with other people so they could see it as well. I want to thank Brandon Yoakum for his work on mastering this episode of the podcast. Head to epiphanyrecordingstudio.com for more information about um, Brandon. And finally, I want to thank you for listening to this episode of the podcast. Stay strong, be kind to yourself, never stop growing, and we'll see you next time.